Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to Sermons with Rabbi David Seth Kirchner, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Shana Tova, everyone. A happy, healthy, and sweet new year to you and to all of your families. This is my 10th year celebrating Rosh Hashanah with all of you in the role of, temp, of Rabbi of Temple Emmanuel. Now, for some reason, maybe it's the mile marker of 10 years, or maybe it's the idea that uh, my little girl, who, when we came here, was in diapers, is having her bat mitzvah in just a few weeks. All of these things have caused me to wax nostalgic about the times that we have shared in prayer, and the talks that we have shared in this room on this holiday. 10 years ago, we first got to know one another when we talked about my brother's suicide and the importance of being open with mental illness and depression. The next year and what would begin the beginning of the economic disaster, we spoke about our relationship with money and the desire to leave our children with values in place of valuables. Over the past eight years since then, we've covered a whole bunch of other topics, like marriage and not taking temptations. We talked about not believing in God, but still believing in Judaism and something bigger than ourselves. We talked about living in the sandwich generation, where we're caring for parents and children at the same time. We talked about changing our our expectations instead of hoping others will meet our goals. And we talked about what it is to live with heavy backpacks full of regret, a sermon that I gave after my dad died and the feelings of regret that I was riddled with in the wake of his loss. We've covered those topics and so many others and so many sidebars over the years. We've shared a lot together. And when I got to thinking about it, I noticed that there was one common thread that wove itself through every single one of these topics over the past 10 years. That thread and that concept is honesty. Honesty is a notion that has touch points in all of our life. It's a topic that has risen to the surface more as of late than usual, and there are a lot of reasons for that. First is, It is an election year, and during election years, there is a lot of fact-checking and not truth-telling. It's also the era that we live in that is loaded with embellishments and half-truths and a lot of whole-on-truths, too. Another factor that brings this issue to light is the society we live in today. I think that people are as dishonest today as they've always been throughout history, but today, All of us walk around with phones that have cameras and video machines on them that allow us to capture those moments of dishonesty. Today, we have Google 
that can remind all of us with no bounds on its memory of an untruth that occurred. I don't bring this up to shame you for your past or to shame me for my past, but I bring this topic up today because I think that not being honest with our neighbors, with ourselves, with God, is weighing us down to the point where we can't function at our highest. And I think that too many of us aren't telling the truth, and as a result, aren't living the truth. And lying is a big deal. It even made God's top 10 list. Rosh Hashanah is a time for us to make right that which is wrong. And one potent way to do that in particular is to unload the lies that we tell, to start figuring out why we're being untruthful with our neighbor, with ourselves, and with God, and to begin the process of fixing it. What I hope today does is serve as a catalyst for each and every one of us to transform our dishonest ways into becoming truth-telling and truth-living people. So the lies I want us to look at today can be categorized into three groupings. There are the lies that are told that we feel are for the right reason. Then there are the lies that we tell because we don't have the courage to tell the truth. And then there are lies we tell because we want to believe that they're true. And we think that if we say them, that somehow or another, it makes it more believable. So let's unpeel these categories for a minute. Let's do the first category, lying for the right reason. Everyone in this room is guilty of that in some way or another. I'll give you a couple of examples. Wow, honey, this casserole is delicious. <laughs> or no, I don't think you look heavy in that dress. Or Rabbi, I really loved your sermon. <laughs> you all get the idea. These are lies that are told to honor someone's soul and protect their character and their feelings. And they seem a lot more harmless than they seem harmful. Well, this is nothing new. The Mishnah, which goes back to the third century, goes so far to command us that if there is an ugly bride on her wedding day and she happens to come across you and she says, how do I look? You shouldn't compliment her on her shoes. You're supposed to look her right in the eyes and you're supposed to say to her, you're gorgeous and you look beautiful today because she deserves it especially on that day. Now, I love that law, and I teach it all the time because it always reminds us that at times, feelings rank higher than honesty. And I also love it because the rabbis of old who represented our religion all the way back when, they knew there were times that they needed to be more practical than only strictly law-abiding. They knew that keeping people happy often mattered a lot more than our unrestrained honesty and brutal opinions. So already I've dispelled your worry that I'm gonna to preach to you about brutal honesty at all costs. That's not gonna to happen today. That wouldn't be very practical and it wouldn't be very Jewish. Sometimes we have to say what others need to hear. But the operative word in that sentence is sometimes. This doesn't give us a license to lie when we please and to cater to people's feelings all the times. We have to use our good judgment and our good senses to know when it's applicable. But to be honest, these aren't the category of lies I wanna focus on today. I wanna to focus on the blatant deceitfulness and dishonesty which is happening all around us in so many different ways 
and it's causing the erosion of the foundation of trust that we share with our relatives, friends, that we share with industry leaders, politicians in the world, and all of that erosion trickles down to us. What made Brian Williams or Bernie Madoff or the executives at Wells Fargo or Ryan Lochte or countless politicians of every denomination and stripe to bend the truth? What causes our spouses to lie one to the other? What makes our kids fib? What makes our neighbors false-hearted? Is it a lack of courage? Is it a desire to get ahead? Is it a need to have people think more fondly of them? Is it a need for people to think more fondly of themselves? Maybe a little bit of all of the above? About seven years ago, I shared a story with all of you about a vacation Dory and I took to Australia. It was before any of our children were born. Some of you in this room weren't present then, and most of the, you probably forgot the story, so I'll remind you about pieces of it. We landed after 25 hours on an airplane in Melbourne, and we were exhausted. We had a driver pick us up at the airport, and he was taking us to our hotel, and he found out it was our first time in Australia, and he could tell by looking at me that I loved Ben and Jerry's, and I also loved food. He said to me, if it's your first time in Australia, you really have to try a jump burger. A jump burger is a burger made of kangaroo meat that is only made and sold in Australia. Well, as a foodie and someone who likes to try different foods, this sounded really exciting. You might remember when I shared this with you, but the major obstacle was it wasn't kosher. But here I was in Australia, half a world away. Who was going to know? So for 18 days of that vacation, I hemmed and I hawed, should I eat the forbidden fruit? Should I take a bite of the jump burger? In the end, I decided not to. And there are three reasons why I didn't. The first reason is, as I reminded you seven years ago, who was I going to tell if I ate this burger? <laughs> Half the fun of doing something exciting like this is being able to share it with your pals and your family and your friends. Couldn't share it with the soul. Second reason, equally compelling, if I ate that jump burger in Australia, I think the next time a temptation was in front of me, whatever it was, it would have been so much harder for me to have fought it and to have succeeded. Because once you bite into that forbidden fruit once, I think the temptation becomes so much harder to fight all the other times. But the most compelling reason that I didn't eat that jump burger, more than the other two, was that I believed that by eating that burger, I would have been cheating and lying to God that I made a commitment, not as a rabbi, but as a Jew, that I was gonna observe the laws of kashrut. And those laws were applicable in Kloster and Manhattan and Los Angeles and in Sydney and Melbourne. And that if I tried to pull a fast one on my friends and family and those who I model leadership for, and even on God, that is tantamount to cheating and lying on God. That experience from all those years ago still shapes me today. Not in a holier-than-thou way, because trust me, I have made plenty of bad decisions and mistakes from that point till today. But I will tell you, in choosing not to eat that jump burger, I feel freer 
I feel more connected with God, and I feel a lot more honest in my relationship. Now, seven years ago, I gave this story as a metaphor for fidelity in marriage, but it's also a very meaningful reminder to all of us that when we step off the wrong path, we end up falling oftentimes down a deep and wicked spiral. And dishonesty leads us into that hole in that wicked, deep spiral. And sometimes it's so steep, we can't climb back up into the world of truth. Think about a time you know someone lied to you. Not the casserole's delicious lie. I mean, something that was substantive. Maybe your sibling lied to you, or maybe it was a coworker, or maybe a friend, or maybe your spouse. Maybe it had something to do with timeliness, or maybe it had something to do with finances, or maybe it had something to do with fidelity. And think for a minute about how that one lie removed any of the terra firma from under your feet. How it undid all of the good, all of the positive, all the random interaction you had earned over years of trust. How that one lie is tantamount to a world and life of lies. Because when you're outed for that lie, it makes the other who you are in relationship with question the authenticity of everything you say and do and everything that you have said and done. It unearths the past, and we act like forensic scientists investigating statements and alibis and excuses. And even when we have sincere tshuva, when we express sincere remorse, it takes Years, sometimes even decades, to rebuild that sense of solid footing and establish trust again. One single act can undo all of that trust that was built. When I officiate at weddings, oftentimes right here in this very spot, I always remind every bride and groom that one of the reasons we break a glass under the chuppah is to remind them of the fragility of the love that they have built that if you ever had the glass, the glass blower make a piece of glass and you could witness it, you would see that he or she can work on it for hours at a time, sometimes even days, to make that glass just right, just perfect, without blemish and without bubble. But all it takes is one careless act for that glass to get scratched or to shatter and break. It's the exact same thing with the lie. I never lived in California, but my friends who live there tell me, those who have lived through earthquakes, that every time a big truck passes by and the earth starts to shake, they're sure it's the next big one. It makes them unsteady. It makes every time something around them cause them to move, they fear. It's the exact same thing when it comes to lying. And the only thing that starts to blunt it is a huge gap in time between any of those big trucks shaking the earth. It's the same thing when we're dishonest with our loved ones and that people who matter much to us, when we start telling lies, we erode the foundation of our relationship. And when we lie to people we don't know, we paint a really vivid picture of our character. And it's not a flattering one. My father always taught me a liar has to have a very good memory. Think about the people that you admire most in life. Think about the person who you strive to emulate. 
Now, I know that such a person, whoever you're dreaming of, is far from perfect, but I imagine that they're honest people, that they're truth-telling people, which makes them truth-living people. When I think of people I try to emulate, two people come to mind. The first is the late Elie Wiesel of blessed memory who dedicated his life to the entire notion of living the truth. But closer to home for me, I think of my past boss who was my moral barometer. He's the former chancellor of JTS. His name is Dr. Ismar Schorsch. Dr. Schorsch is a German Jew to his core, always on time, always graceful, always elegant, always kind. And I would ask myself, how would Ismar answer this question? Or how would Ismar deal with this conundrum? Or how would he maneuver his way out of this pickle? And each time I put myself into his shoes, or each time I had the good fortune of watching him interact with Fortune 100 CEOs, or with elected officials, or dignitaries, or even the kitchen staff at the dining hall at JTS, he was the exact same man. He was on time, he was kind, he was graceful, he was sweet, and he was always honest. Who's your moral barometer? Who's the person you think about in your mind that you try to emulate, that you want to be a little bit more like? Is the backbone of who they are honest living? Think about the people who you're very closest with, your nearest and very dearest. Chances are they're the people that know us the best and that we hide the least from. That's because we're the people that we're the most honest with. And that's no coincidence. What I'm trying to express to you is that when we're honest, we inherently and naturally bring people closer to us. And when we are dishonest, we give them the Heisman. We keep them far away. The commentators of the Torah told us that we should strive to have tocho kivaro. We should have our insides match our outsides. If we act one way but believe another, then we're not being honest, not with ourselves and not with other people. And it's not bringing the best in us outwards. Now, I'm not naive. I know it's really, really hard sometimes to be honest. There are some situations that are very painful and very hard. But so many things in life are hard. But they better us. Diets are hard to keep. Exercising makes us sweat. Working isn't easy. But most good and healthy things in life are hard, but they're worth the benefits. And as one of my very first bar mitzvah boys taught me, his goal every night is to say the Shema and put his head on a soft pillow. But when we tell lies, we put rocks inside those pillows, which means we can't sleep well and we can't function well. But when we replace those lies with truth-telling, which leads to truth-living, we replace those rocks with feathers, which allows us to sleep soundly and to be more honest and upright in the way we go about our day. There's another form of lying that happens too. It's called the lie of omission. How many things are we withholding from others and even ourselves that we don't release it doesn't allow people to understand who we are and what we're about and what lives in our proverbial backpacks. Now, Judaism goes to great lengths to differentiate between the public and the private, 
There are some things in this world that need to be private and shouldn't be shared with others. Judaism sanctifies that. But there are things that when we choose to share and we deal with them, it not only liberates us by being honest, it attunes our social orbit better towards truthful living. I want to share a powerful example with each of you dating back to the year 1960. It was when the state of Israel was only 12 years young and it had its first of what would become a running list of incredible achievements. In 1960, the Mossad captured Adolf Eichmann and secretly brought him back to Israel where he would stand trial for crimes against the Jewish people and crimes against humanity. Now, believe it or not, from the inception of the state of Israel until 12 years later, the Holocaust, the Shoah, was a topic that was rarely spoken about in the nascent state. There was a deep division between the Sephardic Jews, who mainly came from North Africa, who emigrated to Israel before the state was declared, and the Ashkenazic Jews, who primarily came from Eastern Europe. Most of them had survived the war and came to Israel after 1945. In most cases, these Ashkenazic Jews were just a smattering of the survivors of their family, their village, or even their country. Now, this chasm that existed between the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim, it was really, really thick. Sephardim would ridicule the Ashkenazim with hindsight statements like, you weaklings, or why didn't you fight back, or we never would have walked like sheep to the slaughter. And the Ashkenazim were made to feel like the other. But there was one thing that shattered that chasm. The trial of Adolf Eichmann on the state stage for all of the inhabitants of the state of Israel to witness. The prosecution had a really awesome task. They had to blend together two strategies. First, they had to try Eichmann on the pure emotion of being responsible for the death of six million Jews in the most disgusting and brutal way. But they also had to prove to the world that they were a real state and could try this man like any other serious jurisprudent state that follows letters of the law. And they had to prove that his hand was involved in some fashion or another with sending Jews to their death and his oversight in the murder of Jews. So they had 56 days of trial and 112 witnesses, most of whom were survivors of the Shoah. And they recounted their testimony in front of the chief monsters who was responsible for these unspeakable crimes. Now for most of the witnesses and their testimony, it was the very first time they shared their stories. For many, their kids had never heard their story before. Their spouses had never heard their story before. Their friends had never heard their story before. And their Sephardic neighbors had never heard their story before. Now this choice not to share this information wasn't a form of lying by survivors by any means. Of course not. How could you or I ever judge them for what they had been through? But it was a sense, in the rawest and most honest form of unpacking the baggage and history of their lives, which adjusted how their family responded to them, how their friends responded to them, how the Sephardim responded to them, and how the state of Israel would be shaped in responding to them. It even affected how Yad Vashem would cement its role in the state, which was only a few years young at the time. It was a really powerful demonstration of no longer withholding or omitting, 
but rather opening up to the other and being honest with others about our journeys, about our challenges. And yes, sometimes even sharing our demons. And they did so in a way that was liberating again to them. It was cathartic individually, and it was cathartic globally. And I think it paved the way for more truthful living for the entire country of Israel in countless ways. Now this example hit home for me because were it not for this capture, would the chasm between the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim still exist today? How much longer would they still harbor this resentment one to the next? And how would that impact so many of the possibilities that were since seen in this state? Now this story reminds me a lot of my brother and his suicide. My brother Gabe's battle with mental illness was something we didn't know about until after he died. And we were also unaware that he was molested at a yeshiva in Baltimore as a teenager. Now maybe if we, his family, had created a safer space for him to feel freer and honest and open to talk about his struggles, and maybe if he had just a bit more courage, perhaps, perhaps, Truth living is about our role in creating a safe space for people that we love to be open and truthful without any fear of being judged, being criticized, being castigated, or being made to feel different. And it's also on us to nurture that place and to espouse that ethic. And equally, it's on us to see where and when it exists in this world and to muster up our own courage to be honest and to be truthful about our challenges and our struggles and our journeys. It's symbiotic. You gotta make that space and you have to get comfortable in that space. And when we do, I think we're modeling one of the most important forms of honesty that exist. And when we don't, then sometimes we're continuing a form of untruthfulness with ourselves and those we care about the most. All of us are sitting heavy on our chairs. We're all weighed down with some form or another of non-truthful living. Perhaps it's the lies that we tell each other, or ourselves, or God. But we're also weighed down by those things that we haven't shared with those that matter the most in our lives. This is a time to liberate ourselves before it's too late. Or else, like we talked about in Rosh Hashanah and yesteryears, we're going to be riddled with regret and make our backpacks very heavy. Woe to us if we become like Abraham, who lies to Ishmael and Hagar, who hides his true feelings from Sarah, and when he holds Isaac's hand and ascends the mountain, and his little innocent son looks up at him and says, Dad, we've got everything to make a sacrifice except for the animal. Where's the animal, Dad? Abraham responds, don't worry, the animal will provide itself. In other words, he lies to his son. And why? to earn his love, his trust? Does he say this on truth because it's something that he hopes will turn into a truth? What an ironic fate. Because when Abraham comes back from the mountain, Sarah's dead and he can never share his feelings nor she with him. Isaac never again speaks to his father, only sees him again to come and to bury him. Maybe we read this parsha to remind us very clearly what's gonna happen to us if we're not truth-telling and if we're not truth-living. 
on this new year of 5,777, I plead with all of you, I plead with myself, to start this season and the first day of the rest of our lives with truth-telling and truth-living. Start by using your good senses to know when someone needs our love and our support. Whether it's a bride on her wedding day or the unskillful chef making a casserole, know that our friends need to hear sometimes love and support, and that matters more than our brutal honesty. All of you are really smart people. Just hone in on that sense and use it when necessary. Second, gather the courage and be resolute to be honest with your kids, siblings, with your parents, and with your spouses. Be truthful to your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, so that you can fortify the foundation that we all share with those who matter the most in our lives. That we can be people of integrity, of candor, of scruples, and we can be people of honesty. Be people that make sure that our insides and our outsides match so that our words and our deeds are always in sync. And lastly, create the safe space for others to share their honesty and be truthful livers. And for you to be brave too by opening up in that safe space that others have created and afforded you. Start today, start now. We can't afford to wait. Just so you know, truth-telling and truth-living don't necessitate you going back in time and unearthing every single past transgression. It does not need a polygraph machine. That is kind of like taking a stick and shaking it in the bushes and seeing which serpents are going to come out. But what it does necessitate is recognizing dishonesties and moving forward today with trustworthiness. Because when we're trustworthy and we're truth-telling and truth-living, it makes our backpacks lighter and it makes our relationships richer inside and out. Svia Valdan, who is Shimon Perez's daughter, eulogized her dad so beautifully on Friday and one of her words has been stirring in my heart ever since I heard it. She said, Optimists and pessimists die the exact same way. They just live differently. Isn't that the same with false speakers and truth livers? On this day, that reminds us of the fragility of our existence. When we ask to be inscribed in the book of life, shouldn't we strive to live differently too? As I map out the next mile markers in my life, as I think about the next weeks ahead and the next months ahead, and please God, the next 10 years ahead of stories and challenges, tears and laughter that we're going to share together in this room, I pray for my sake, for your sake, for the sake of the Jewish people and for the sake of all humanity, that we have as our common thread that weaves us all together, honesty, truth-telling and truth-living. Let that honesty be a compass that points us forward. Because if it does, I am confident that wherever we go and whatever we do, it'll make us better. It'll be better for the world that we're going to share. But most of all, it's going to be better for the world that we're going to leave to our children to inherit. Kenya Hiratso, may that be God's will. Shana Tova, everyone.